I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to be joined by Ann Cundell from SoxProspects.com. He's the director of scouting for them in just a little bit. Nobody does it better than SoxProspects.com. So we'll get into the lack of activity for the Red Sox at the deadline. Can they still make a postseason run after what we saw transpire on the West Coast? Obviously, a huge series coming up for the Sox as Toronto comes in for three starting tomorrow. And of course, the Red Sox chasing Toronto for that final wild card spot. In the American League, we'll get into the Garrett Whitlock situation, the Chris Sale situation, the Trevor Story situation. We'll do all that with Ann Cundell in just a little bit. And I also have another list for you. My top five Celtics guards since the turn of the century. This was a fun one to rank, so we'll get into that as well at the back end of the pod. But where I want to start is with the Patriots, because I'm starting to feel excited about actually seeing this offense in game action, which is something I wasn't thinking about much during the offseason. So my buddy Andrew Callahan had an article up on Wednesday, of course, from the Herald, where the Patriots had a really good practice on Wednesday. And he writes, the Pats' best offensive training camp practice in almost two years was a big day built of small moments. How about that? Best practice for the offense in two years. And I guess that's not too much of a shocker based on what we would find out about the offense last year with Matt Patricia. But Callahan writes in the article, One play which set off an extended end zone celebration with dancing and shouting and more dancing captured how lively the unit has become under Bill O'Brien. At the five-yard line on his final snap on an 11-on-11 period, Jones studied the Patriots' proud prowling defense opposite him and called a new play. He gestured to Juju Smith-Schuster, split out wide right, flipped the running back Kevin Harris from his left hip onto his right in a shotgun formation, and look left to Kendrick Bourne. Jones barked for the snap. He took one step back and dropped and flicked a soft pass to the right that looked to 
destined to soar out of the end zone. The exception right on cue, Smith-Schuster emerged all alone, left, snatched the ball, and tapped two feet in bounds. Touchdown. Callahan goes on to write, Jones audible, Smith-Schuster later revealed, defeated a special coverage the defense had called to corral most two-men route combinations near the goal line. That is, except the one Jones dialed up with his number one receiver. Okay, so in other words, Mac picked up on what the defense has been doing, and he was able to find Juju Smith-Schuster for a touchdown and answer the problem, so to speak, right? So Callahan also noted that Mac had some of his best completions of camp, a 15-yard in route to Juju with Jonathan Jones in tight coverage, an 18-yard touchdown to Devontae Parker, and a deep out to the rookie Kayshawn Booty. Okay, so I know what a lot of you are thinking right now is, hey, Brian, it's training camp, it's just practice, but... Remember what we were hearing just a year ago with this team coming out of camp. And during camp, this offense is a mess. They look look disjointed. They look like they have no idea what they're doing. And it turns out that everybody that was saying that last year, all the beat reporters around the team, they were right. And look, I've understood at times during training camp, they've gotten off to a slow start in terms of the offense at times. But overall, this is much more encouraging news, right? Mac is out there making the correct audible calls, when last year, we saw midway through the season, the Patriots couldn't even get play calls in, where Mac's going nuts on the field, saying, get it in quicker. That's how bad it was. When Mac was yelling at the sideline, that was midway through the season, and now Mac in training camp is correcting to the right play at the line of scrimmage, right? So yes, we have to wait and see if this actually works during the regular season, and we have legitimate questions, but at least we're entering the season knowing that the offense is going to, at the very least, be well-coached. And the quarterback is, at the very least, going to have a legitimate chance to prove whether or not he's a franchise guy, which last year he didn't have that opportunity, right? Last year at this time, we're talking about what a disaster this was, and they were trying to remember implement that Shanahan-style offense, and they just abandoned it during the season because they couldn't execute it. They didn't know how to run it, right? So they had to say, yeah, 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 the Shanahan thing, we're not doing that anymore. So they spent all this time during training camp, trying to run the Shanahan-style offense that really never worked whatsoever, so they wasted all this time. So at least what we know at this particular point in time, during this specific training camp, the Patriots are installing an offense that the quarterback is already comfortable with. I'm not saying it's perfect or anything along those lines, but at least we know the quarterback's going to enter the season with a good offensive scheme and an understanding of that scheme rather than last year where the training camp was so bad trying to implement this new offense that never worked. They couldn't even execute it in practice, right? So this may seem like a small basic thing, but we didn't have that last season, right? Furthermore, on the offense, Connor Orr, who we had on the other day on the pod, he came on right after practice on Tuesday. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. Some really interesting nuggets from him. But he mentioned that Bill O'Brien is similar to Brian Dayball in terms of how he wants to operate an offense, right? Using a bunch of different personnel packages. So if you look at Brian Dayball taking over in New York, they were one of the worst teams in the NFL under our buddy Joe Judge, right? They won a playoff game last year with Daniel Jones as the quarterback the Giants did. They went from one of the worst teams in the NFL to a good team that won a playoff game, right? We're talking about Daniel Jones prior to last year. Is he really going to be the quarterback there long term? I remember I thought like, hey, maybe Brian Dayball and company, they go there and they suck for a year and then he drafts one of these quarterbacks high in the draft. That's no longer the case, right? You look at what Daniel Jones did. His completion percentage increased by almost three percentage points from 64.3% to 67.2%. 
So what did Brian Dayball do? Well, he made life easier for Daniel Jones, right? It was really a quarterback-friendly offense when you look at it because this has not been a guy or this hadn't been a guy up until that particular point that had proven himself as an NFL quarterback. So a ridiculous 31.8% of his passing attempts or his dropbacks, I should say, came out of play action. 207 dropbacks were out of play action last year for Daniel Jones. That's courtesy of Pro Football Focus. That was the third most in the entire NFL, okay? Only two guys had more dropbacks out of play action, and he completed 74.4% of those passes. Only Geno Smith was better in terms of his completion percentage out of play action. 78 first downs out of play action. Only Jared Goff and Pat Mahomes had more. So Dayball was making life easier for Daniel Jones from a scheme perspective with a lot of play action, heavy play action, and the other thing they did is featured their best player in Saquon Barkley, Sound familiar? The Patriots' best player is Ramondre Stevenson, on offense at, the, at least. And if you look at it, and I know Ramondre's been limited in practice, as Doug Kide reported, they're just trying to sort of make sure that <laughs> he doesn't get overworked during training camp. So I have no issue with that whatsoever. But Barkley last year was fourth in rushing attempts at 295. Brian Dayball said, hey, this is our best player. We're going to continue to give him the football. Makes a lot of sense. Heavy play action game, which I've been encouraging. I want to see that from the Patriots' offense, right? And if you look at the Giants' offense last season, ninth in EPA per play, expected points added, they were dead last in 2021. So they went from dead last in EPA per play, basically the least efficient offense in the NFL, to a top 10 offense as it pertains to efficiency. And if you look at EPA per play for Daniel Jones, he was 23rd among quarterbacks in 2021. In 2022, he's up to 11th. So he climbed 12 spots. Furthermore, you look at the Giants' red zone offense, Fifth last season at 64.8%. In 2021, that was dead last at 44.7%. So basically, a 20 percentage point improvement as it pertains to the red zone offense. So my point with all this is Daniel Jones didn't just become some great quarterback, right? Right now, I don't think anybody would say, hey, Daniel Jones is a really, really good quarterback. No, it's like, ah, ah, kind of give Brian Dave all the credit for that. But you get my point is he went from a guy where this organization, the Giants organization, I should say, didn't pick up his fifth-year option to a guy that just got $160 million in terms of a contract extension. He's making $40 million per year. So he's not making, yet yeah, top-of-the-line quarterback money, but they've said, hey, it works. Brian Dable obviously trusts him and trusts him in his scheme to make this thing work. So if you look at the Patriots last season, last in red zone offense, Mack was 26 in EPA per play, and the Patriots were 24th in EPA per play. Very similar to the season the Giants were coming off of in 2021 prior to bringing in Brian Dayball. And if you look at Mac's rookie season, it was way better than any season Daniel Jones had had prior to last year. Now, I'm not saying that Bill O'Brien is as good as Brian Dayball, right? But what we know is the backgrounds are similar. Former Patriots assistants, both went to Alabama and were the offensive coordinators there. And my whole point with this is this is now who the season is on. The season is on Bill O'Brien in terms of if this team is gonna be successful, right? He has the ability, I can never remember this happening, where he actually has the ability to be the story in a good way with a Patriots coordinator, right? Think about it, because if you go through the history of this organization since Belichick has taken over, the great defenses, yeah, we mentioned the coordinators, but it's not like Rack or Flores or Patricia or even Mangini get a ton of credit for that, right? We don't say, or Dean Pease back in the day, we don't give them the credit for it. It's Bill's defense, right? It's Bill Belichick's defense. 
And even if you look at the offense, whether it be Charlie Weiss back in the day, whether it was Bill O'Brien with his tenure here, where he had the year with the two tight ends and all that, or it was Josh McDaniels at the beginning or after Weiss, then he came back after the failed coaching experiment, and then he may be back again after this thing with the Raiders flames out. But you get my point is the offense, all the credit went to Tom. So the defense, all the credit always went to Bill. The offense, all the credit always went to essentially went to Tom Brady. Now, maybe that brief year, he gave Josh a little bit of credit for Mac, but I don't think it was like everybody was praising Josh. I thought that was even more about Mac. But now that Mac has had that bad season under Matt Patricia and Mac took a lot of criticism last year, I really believe this is the first time we could be talking about the Patriots offensive coordinator where Bill O'Brien legitimately could not only save Mac Jones's career, but could save face for Bill Belichick. And I never have remember that being the case within this organization whatsoever, which is really remarkable to think about right now. One other Patriots adjacent note I wanted to touch on real quick. Tom Brady, apparently, not apparently, he became a minority owner of Birmingham City, an English soccer team, not a huge soccer guy. But in a statement, the club said, Brady, quote, will apply his extensive leadership experience and expertise across several components of the club, including working alongside sports science department or along the sports science department to advise on health, nutrition, wellness, and recovery systems and problems. Okay, so this is another win for the TB12 brand, right? We're in a statement. They mentioned his expertise in terms of the sports science. So obviously this helps Brady's brand. And now we're looking at, I don't know how heavily involved he's going to be, but the TB12 brand is now going to be in England. I'm not sure how successful it's going to be, but I'm just saying like now people can look at this and say, oh, Tom Brady's in England too. So it just, for me, Tom Brady's been all over the place. And he also talked to Karen Gregian of Mass Live this week about Robert Kraft's Hall of Fame candidacy. And Brady says, obviously it's a no brainer. And he said, nobody deserves it more. But the one thing that stuck out to me about Brady's case that he made for Kraft getting into the Hall of Fame. He said, quote, he realized when he's talking about the hiring of Bill, he realized how talented of a coach he was, and he had the foresight and the conviction to give up picks. That's a lot to give up for anyone, but he was so sure that Bill was the right coach, he went for it. So if you look at Tom Brady, he's pointing out the fact that Robert Kraft deserves a ton of credit for Bill Belichick, and he certainly does. I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. It's a good thing to point out when you're talking about his Hall of Fame candidacy, if you will. But the other thing I think about with Tom, and this is just sort of of a bigger, broader point here, is this guy just doesn't want to hold grudges, right? I mean, you think about this. He, after he left the Patriots, he wins the Super Bowl, of course, and he's the proven guy without the others, right? He's the one guy out of this group, the trio, if you will, the Kraft, Belichick, Brady trio, He's the one guy that has proven himself without the other two. Kraft and Bill haven't won anything since Tom left, and it's not like Bill had a very successful tenure in Cleveland. I know you can go into details there, but he never won anything significantly there. He won one playoff game. So I think with Tom, he appreciates the relationship that he had with these guys so much is he doesn't even want to think about the issue that they had during the divorce, the issues that those three guys had individually. He's over it because he already had all the success that he needed to. So he doesn't want to remember any of that, right? So I just have this bigger conclusion about Tom. I just don't see him ever doing the Fox thing. He doesn't want to be critical of guys, right? He isn't that type of person. He doesn't need it either. I mean, he's, I know it's a lot of money to give up, but he's going to have all these other opportunities that we've already outlined since he's retired, right? I mean, 
We've seen guys that have gone into the booth and have been very unsuccessful. You're thinking about Emmett Smith, Joe Montana, the Jerry Rices. I just don't think that Tom wants to be unsuccessful at anything. And with that type of job, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? It's what people think of you on the air. It's not like Tom could point to the scoreboard and say, hey, we won that game. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's more about, hey, how do people think you did in your new job, right? So I just add all those things up when I'm thinking about Brady. I just don't see the Fox thing becoming a reality because he has all this other stuff going on when you're talking about 199 Productions, when you're talking about the TB12 brand, when you're talking about the Las Vegas Aces. We'll see what happens with this situation in terms of Tom wanting to get involved with the Raiders, right? Like all these different things that Tom is a part of now, why would he do this Fox thing? If really, if you think about it, I don't think it's a huge win for Tom. Like the odds of him being the best broadcaster in the game are very minimal. So he's got enough attention. He does enough where he's still in the spotlight. I think Tom is just going to try to be like this big businessman, own or be part of different organizations throughout the landscape of sports. And <laughs> Those are major wins for Tom Brady. So I just, I don't see this Fox thing happening whatsoever. And I'm glad that, you know, he's getting involved in soccer as well. It's an interesting thing, but I'm fascinated to see Tom post-retirement because I quite frankly thought he would struggle in terms of finding things to do, but this is the route he's going. He's got plenty of things to do and he's really visible right now. I mean, we saw him recently with Bradley Cooper's ex, right? Like dating a model. Like this is like, Tom is still all over the place. He's still relevant. Why would he want to do this Fox thing? every week where he's got to analyze and watch film, and then the audience may not like it. I just don't see Tom ever doing that. But I know that's not like a new take. A lot of people have that take. But the more and more we see Tom getting involved with other things, don't see the Fox thing happening whatsoever. And I do think that was a really smart thing for Tom to point out, by the way, that one of the reasons, and he mentioned all the labor stuff and the TV stuff with Robert Kraft as well, as he really helped with TV deals. And of course, the labor issues that they had. There's that famous picture of him and Jeff Saturday where... They were able to come to an agreement on a CBA where we almost had no football and it got really close to that point. But the Bill Belichick hiring, he deserves a ton of credit for that because Bill was not good in Cleveland. And you think about it from that perspective. He also was part of the Bill Parcells coaching tree who Robert had clear issues with Bill Parcells at the end. So I think it's really it's a good point. I mean, Robert went after the guy that was under Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells had issues with. Robert Kraft. Kraft had issues with Bill Parcells. So I think it is a really good point by Tom Brady. It's a smart thing. Not that I should be surprised that Tom pointed out a smart thing. All right, a lot more coming up. We'll get into the lack of activity at the trading deadline for the Red Sox with Ann Cundell from SoxProspects.com. The U.S. team is taking on the world and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel because right now new customers get $100 in bonus bets guaranteed plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Plus, $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from SoxProspects.com. The director of scouting there at Ann Cundell. And thanks so much for coming back, man. How are you? 
Uh, good. Thanks for having me back on, Brian. It's always fun talking Red Sox, though. <laughs> Rough couple of days, uh, I would yeah. say, out in Seattle. Yeah, kind of embarrassing, especially from a defensive perspective. That was the uh, inning from hell on Wednesday afternoon. So, by the way, right before we started recording, we get these reports from Ken Rosenthal, where he reported the Red Sox were shopping James Paxson and Adam Duvall. We knew about that. But Justin Turner, which this one is shocking to me, like, it felt like, and the Red Sox are still in a hunt for a wild card spot. Turner has been basically since the start of June. He's driven in more runs than anybody across the sport. He's been the Red Sox best hitter with runners in scoring position. He's been a leader in that clubhouse. I'm actually like the Duvall thing and the Paxton thing. We knew about that, but finding out that Turner was actually out there, and now that this information Ann is out there, it doesn't behoove the Red Sox to put it out there that they were shopping Turner. This is, I don't think this is good, like for, from a clubhouse perspective and all that. And I get it. These guys are professional, but man, can you imagine what would have happened if they actually moved on from Turner? There would have been a mutiny. Yeah, I, I would guess I would, this is one of those, you know, doing your due diligence because if a team is going to offer you just an insane package for someone like Justin Turner who's 38 years old, you probably do it. But at the same time, as you said, it's it's not great when this comes out because Turner's one of the leaders of the teams. It seems like the younger guys, um, which obviously they're they're playing a lot of them and they're having a really big impact, really look up to him. He's brought a really professional approach, I think, that the team needed, um, especially with the changing of the guard with a lot of the older vets leaving after last season. And I think that it's never good when, you know, someone like that who I think is very it seems like he's he's a big you know leadership uh wears his heart on a sleeve type he probably is not going to enjoy unless he, obviously unless he knew waking up to read that he was being shopped at the deadline to get traded to miami so yeah that's not ideal um and i think it though it just is a reflection of where the red Sox were at where they obviously didn't do a lot at the deadline and they probably seems like they were closer to selling than they were to buying anything of note though I, that, that there was that weird note in there about verlander which i don't really yeah. get because that salary wise that doesn't make any sense for what they're trying to do but yeah no it's it's not a great report to come out uh, right after the deadline especially when you're still trying to push for the playoffs with the team that you basically entered the deadline with yeah i i bet the red sox are really pissed off that that's actually out there because we didn't hear about it until today like i'm no, sure that, they're not you know, happy that's not from them you can yeah, tell when exactly. when it says that it fell through yeah. You could probably guess which side that came from. But. <laughs> exactly. So that's something I'm sure they're aggravated about. But to your Verlander point, I'm with you, man. From a financial perspective, this really doesn't make any sense that the Red Sox would bring him in. And if you look at like how that deal sort of went down, Steve Cohen paid for the number one prospect in the Astros organization along with another prospect. So yeah. It and look, I get it that it's not the same level of prospect as Marcelo Meyer or right? Like it's not like you're no. getting, you're putting Meyer in that type of deal for Justin Verland or any anything along those lines, right? Like but it's just crazy to think about the fact that I I don't even see, like I'm guessing this is just the Red Sox making a call seeing what the Mets would be willing to trade you for Justin Verlander and look, maybe Justin Verlander at 40 is more durable than like 80% of pitchers in Major League Baseball at this particular point in time. Andy's throwing the ball really well as of late, but I can't believe that the Red Sox were really engaged in this whatsoever. And it looked like Verlander wanted to go back to Houston anyway. Yeah, it seemed like that was the only place he was going to waive his no trade to go anyway. But it's just, it is interesting to me because we didn't really cure a lot of connections with the Red Sox, with the, the top starting pitchers in the market. Like they were in on Rich Hill apparently. But other than that, you didn't really hear them on Lorenzen, Lance Lynn, any of those guys. So to not be in on those guys, but then to be in on Justin Verlander, who would put you over the CBT, basically, unless the Mets ate the entire contract this year, 
it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And as you said, the prospect capital, the Astros gave up a legit prospects back. Drew Gilbert's a top 100 guy, double A outfielder. He can hit, he can run, good defender. He's a legitimately good prospect. And then Ryan Clifford was one of their highest draft picks last, or not highest draft picks, but he got a big bonus and he's significantly outperformed his draft position. I think it was 11th round pick, but he got well over a million dollars. He's already in high A, big power, not really a defender, but he can hit. He's got some pop, takes walks. That would have cost them, you know, you're looking at two top 10 prospects in the system easily. And I just, th- doing something like that doesn't really make sense to me, especially given the rest of their moves where they're clearly not, and what High and Bloom has talked about, they're not all in for this year. You know, they're not going to, yeah. they're not willing to 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 pay, what, what was this saying? Like Rob Peter to pay Paul or something. They're not willing to, you know, take away from what their future looks like, which they've built, you know, it looks a lot, lot better than it does for the future than it did in past seasons. Um, they're not willing to sacrifice that in order to get the short, short-term upgrade that, you know, a 41 year old or 40 year old Justin Verlander would give this year. So that was just, that was a weird report to me. Yeah. He also, he also said that a good fit may not be a good trade. That was another word that he yep. used, but he Which did say that, it's right. true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. He did also say, we're ready to roll with this group. So he's ready to roll with this group, which brings me to the point that we started off talking about how bad it was in Seattle, but just thinking about the fact that they didn't add an arm at all. And I understand that Chris Sale's on his way back, Tanner Houck's on his way back, and Garrett Whitlock's on his way back. But that Wednesday afternoon game in Seattle sticks out to me because Crawford gives you 81 pitches. Maybe they're trying to be careful with Crawford, who, of course, you know, you mentioned before the pod, he's getting close to, in terms of, like, how many innings he's pitching, you start to wonder, like, how much longer can, how many more innings can he give you at an effective level? And he was really good in the game against Seattle. But my point being is you try to get two out of Schreiber, the problem is Martin is down, right? And you're also looking at Josh Winkowski, who's down. Who you got to be careful with his innings because now he's like basically throwing the most innings out of the bullpen in the sport. Like it's crazy how yeah. much they've relied on him. And I give him credit, but maybe part of that too is, remember he had that blip like in the middle of the season where his stuff was down, his numbers were down, and it seems like he found it again. But the fact that you had that game on Wednesday, it kind of stuck out to me where it's like, all right. I get it. Like none of these controllable guys, with the exception of Savali, moved, right? Like the guys that Bloom was interested in, the Mitch Kellers, the Logan Gilberts, the Dylan Ceases of the world, those type of guys didn't move. But at the same time, could you have gotten just an arm? Like, could you have given up something like your 25th prospect just to get another arm right now? Because Blyer, like, I don't know how you trot that guy back out to the mound anymore. He can't throw the ball well. And then you're dealing with all these injuries that we alluded to. So it just feels like I would have at, li- at least liked to see some arm that the Red Sox brought in just to give them some more depth. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's frustrating because when you watch those games, I feel like they've had, you know, 10, 12, 15 of those games that seemed eminently winnable. And they've just lost because the bullpen, the certain guys, the guys you trust, which their back three with Jansen Martin Winkowski is very good. You know, you're that's that's a legit bullpen. I give Heimblum and Co. a lot of credit. They remember yeah. how much of an issue that has been in the past. They built a legitimately good back of the bullpen this year. The problem they've had is just getting to that group or when those on the days those guys are down. And you saw it yesterday and it just, yeah, like I look at what the Yankees did. They got Kenyon Middleton. They gave up. I, I was not, not a noteworthy prospect. Even someone like that just helps your bullpen because he's a competent, you know, even if he's slightly above replacement level, that's fine. You know, they didn't need another late inning guy. They just needed someone right. who you can trust to throw strikes and miss some bats. And when you look at the guys at the back of the, or not the back, but you know, the lower totem pole of the bullpen right now, the Richard Blyer types, they don't miss bats. You know, he, the margin for error there is so low. 
And we saw it yesterday. And same with Schreiber right now. Like his velo was down yesterday. He struggled in his first inning. They had to push him to the second inning because they didn't really have anyone else to throw who they trusted in a close game. And they lost that game because of it. And it's it just, yeah, it strikes me that even because we'll get to it, I'm sure. I, I like Luis Urias move, and I think it addresses a hole in the team um, with the struggles they've had at second base. But if you do that, and then you add one pitcher, I think the whole narrative around the trade deadline is completely different. And I don't think it would have cost you very much, especially with the with the fungible prospects they have to move. You know, they have a bunch of guys that are fringe 40-man ads that you could, like what they did with Urias trade, that you could trade, and you're not going to really miss those guys, or you're probably not going to protect them, frankly. So there's a chance they might even get rule five. So I just, yeah, it was kind of weird to me that they didn't make a move to address any sort of pitching. And I don't even think they needed a starter anymore. It's just a reliever because Pavetta looks great in the rotation all of a sudden, yeah. which is kind of wild. And Murphy's <laughs> been, you're fine with Murphy running a bullpen game. And if you tell me you trust, you know, that out of those three guys back, you can fill one rotation spot. I would believe that. So, yeah, it was just, it, it's been, it was a frustrating, definitely a frustrating loss and something that, you know, every game matters with how this team is playing right now. So it's tough. By the way, Murphy's been good as a guy yeah. that covers all these prospects. How shocked are you that they're getting this out of Murphy? It's it's one of those things that I, I never really liked him as a starter. I always thought he'd be a reliever, but he's really taken to this bulk role. And it just shows that how big of it shows that the fine margins between being a starter and being a reliever, you know, his command and control as a starter. He struggled. He wasn't missing bats. He was having to throw four pitches, you know, go multiple times through the order. Whereas in this three inning role, he's basically a two and a half pitch guy. His fastball velos up, he's throwing more strikes. And yeah, I, I've been very impressed with him. And it's, you know, he went from someone who I was just like, probably not a starter for the Red Sox, probably not a starter really for anyone to, oh, wait, he's a legit weapon as like a three inning reliever. And um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's I mean, a great find by the Red Sox scouting staff as a sixth round pick. I think he got a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then the player dev, you know, turning someone like that who struggled to throw strikes in college into a legitimate weapon out of the bullpen is just a great result for the team. All right. So you mentioned Urias. So 2021 through 2022, 1,400, 1,042 plate appearances. And I know this year spent most of the time in AAA, but those two seasons, 39 home runs, he had 23 in one of them. So it's definitely flashed some pop. And you look at the Red Sox second base situation right now. Arroyo has regressed as a player. I don't think there's any way around it. And he can't stay on the field. I mean, that's another issue. 638 OPS, 268 on base. He can't hit lefties. He's south of 197 against lefties as a right-handed hitter. I mean, it's brutal. I mean, he can't hit lefties at all. And look, he's hit righties a little bit this season, but his on-base percentage is south of 300. So it's not like he's consistent there either. You have Reyes, who's a career 249 hitter. You have Story coming back, which means Yu Chang is going to be off short. And Chang is hitting 165. It's not like you want him at second base for his bat. And then Valdez, who played earlier in the season, was just a complete butcher from a defensive perspective. And if you look at the Red Sox in terms of that position, in totality, 282 on base, 27th, 658 OPS, 20th. Would you just say, hey, Urias is here. I mean, we have nobody else at second base right now. Once Story comes back, maybe give him an opportunity, or maybe just give him an opportunity this weekend, like, or the next series after the Blue Jays series when Detroit comes into town. I do feel like Hey, you traded for the guy. You might as well give him a chance because nobody else can play second base for this team consistently. I agree. And I, and I do wonder, and I just thought of this as you were saying it, I wonder if they're going to have him play in double A or play in triple A with story until and bring mm. them both up at the same time. Because if you have them both in Worcester, you're getting Urias acclimated to the team, you know, working with the hitting coaches there. You can also have them maybe get a couple games, you know, develop some chemistry at second base, learn how each other works on the double play positioning, things like that. 
So it's kind of like you're cheating in a way. You're getting them working together for, you know, three, four games, and then you just bring them both up whenever story's ready to go. I think next week, they said, is the target right now. So I, I, I think I would give him a shot. You know, his season has been very weird. He, uh, he went to the WBC, hit really well. Then he got injured in that first game of the regular season, was out, what, I think three months after that. Came back, had, you know, 60, whatever, 70 plate appearances, was very bad. Um, granted, it seems like, like his BABIP was 179. You know what I mean? Like guys go through rough stretches. And if you look at his career average, Babbitt is 277. I'm going to guess that 179 is not sustainable. Just going to throw that out there. And so I, I would definitely bring him up. And as you said, Arroyo, he's the one thing he used to do is hit lefties. Can't do that. Now Reyes is a better as a bench guy. I like him as a bench guy, but he shouldn't be playing every day. Chang is great defender. Can't hit at all. You might as well just with the way second base was one of the biggest question marks I had with this team going forward, because I don't think Nick York's going to be ready to go beginning of next season. Same with Marcelo Meyer. So you you needed someone, you need a stopgap for the next year, year and a half. And I think going out and buying low on someone like Urias, who was he was a two war player for two seasons, um, you know, above average WRC plus. He's a guy that he was a legitimate weapon. He hits for power, takes walks and doesn't strike out at an absurd rate. That's a really nice player at second base if he can return to his previous form. And if you think that, you know, it was mostly injuries this season, yeah, you might as well just call him up and whenever he's ready, you know, couple next couple of days and let it roll and see what you got. Because if he's the answer at second base, I think that plugs one of the biggest questions with this lineup and deepens it even more. You know, if you can get story back, you get Urias, not maybe not even at his peak form, but you know, performing at a league average level, this lineup becomes really scary. I mean, especially with the way Costas is hitting. Yeah. With the way Turner's hitting, Verdugo seems to have kind of found found himself again now that the trade rumors are off the board for him. You know, you could be a guy, a lineup that's going seven, eight guys deep every game. Where really Connor Wong's the only you know defense first option, but you don't care because his defense is incredible behind the plate, and he's actually hitting well too. Yeah. So like this could be a really good lineup if they can get those guys back. And it's just a question of you know do they want to try and work with Orius more, or is it just say hey let's throw him to the fire and see what he's got. Yeah, I can't take any more Arroyo, man, because like when he first came over, I'm like, oh, this is a nice find was a high draft pick. First round pick. Correct me if I'm wrong from the Giants, I believe. Like, yeah, the guy had a ton of talent. I remember he got injured playing first base. Remember, he tried to do the split and the stretch. He got hurt there. But now it's just like the lack of plate discipline is just alarming. This guy will swing at anything. And like, it's not just about the fact that he doesn't take walks, but it's like, you're not making good contact when you're swinging at all these bad pitches. He's just really easy to pitch to right now. So I hope they give Urias a chance because I don't want to watch Arroyo much longer. And I can't imagine they want Chang to be in the lineup, like pushing him over to second base. Maybe Reyes gets some time, but we'll see. So you mentioned story there. We're recording on Thursday. He's going to play for Worcester on Friday. Unlikely he returns this weekend. And you look at it, just 10 games right now, but he has three bombs. The arm looks good from everything yeah. you see. I mean, you can yeah, clearly- I've seen it. It's his defense looks really person? good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've yeah, seen him good. three, four games. His defense looks really good. Um, comfortable throwing on the run. He's got way more zip than last time we saw him in the big leagues. And I think that was the biggest question when they signed him. And something the scouts t- were telling me is that his arm is a major issue. And we saw why, you know, he was injured. Yeah. And now he's got that zip back where, you know, he's making that throw. And he had a couple in double A where ranging to his right into that uh, the five, six hole between third base and shortstop and planning and getting it over there. And it's, it's on a line, you know, it's not like he was throwing lollipops to first base when he was hurt. Now it's hard carry good throws. And he looked really good defensively. And I think that alone is when, if he, you know, the bar with you Chang, he's a good defender, but doesn't hit at all. All story has to do is hit a little bit. And that's a major upgrade there. 
yeah. If he gets like two hits the right the rest of the season, <laughs> maybe wasn't Chang like he was over twenty four or something like I think, oh. and then he had that little dribbler and yeah, and it, some of them are nowhere close. Like he's nowhere no. close on some of these pitches. This guy is lost at the plate. And look, I don't like I said this on my last pod too. I don't want to criticize him too much because. It's just nice that you have somebody that can play competent shortstop after the experiment they had earlier in the season with Kike. But getting back to the story for a second here, I think like we forget how good this guy was. Not we, but people forget how good he was. Like in Colorado, he had two seasons over 600 plate appearances, 30 plus bombs each time. He's had at least 20 bombs in every season. He's had north of 500 plate appearances. He has a career 987 OPS against lefties and a 302 batting average against lefties. Slugs over 611. And I'm starting to think like, okay, now that the arm's fixed, you feel better about that because we did feel like, okay, that's a ticking time bomb. And but now I feel like if you get like if Trevor and I actually feel kind of in a weird way good about the fact that they are saying like he's not he wants to make sure he's 100 percent when he's back. That makes me think he's more like, okay, I'm in spring training mode and we know he's a big launch angle guy and all that. So he probably wants to make sure that all his timing's back. I'm kind of feeling like we may see one of these, like, remember the run he had last year where he had that week where it's just like impossible to get him out. I was actually at that game against the Mariners where he hit the three home runs. Like, I think we're going to get one of those weeks from Trevor's story. Like, I think he's going to be impactful for this team down the stretch of the season. I agree. And just watching him rehab, it, it's kind of a stark contrast with him versus the other minor leaguers because he just looks so different when he's running the bases. He's gliding at the plate. You know, he hits a pop up and it's it's a big league pop up. It's, you know, it's way up in the air, even if it's an out or when he hit, I saw him hit a couple home runs. You know it, you know, it just sounds different off the bat. And I think that, yeah, you have to remember that spring training, they basically get a full month. He's didn't get any of that. You know, even if he ends up going, staying down there for two weeks, three weeks, that's still less time than spring training. So it might take him a little bit of an adjustment period when he gets back to the major leagues, just with the speed of the game, both on both ends. But I think, yeah, that if he can carry over that form and he's 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 uh, sticking with those mechanics. Remember when he made that switch last year? Yeah. At the end of the season. And that's when I think it was going to a toe tap instead of the leg kick. And that's when he really found his form with the Red Sox. You know, I think that there's definitely a chance that he could come back and just go on a tear. And if you add him to the lineup, that's that's a really good lineup. That's and it just it, it, it you can you can we've seen the last couple of days you know the offense has had some ups and downs guys are a little streaky especially with turner not being able to play every day adding him back is just such an important aspect and it takes away basically a guaranteed out of your out of your lineup every day which that alone is just as important let alone him you know performing like at the level he can just being a baseline you know replacement level players and an improvement on offense for them yeah and can you imagine like late in games where it's a situation where it's like Rafi, say Rafi's hitting cleanup that day. You have Story in the five spot, and then you have Casas coming up six, like in that order. Like that's devastating to pitch to. And now you really like you make it a great point about the because Duran is swinging it. Yoshida's yeah. obviously had that little stretch where he went 0 of 18, but uh, he had a hit on what Wednesday. So Yoshida's start. Yoshida's been outstanding all season long. Duvall's actually been swinging the bat better as of late as well. So I mean, there's really not a lot of easy outs in this lineup, which I mean. I think that those are two of the biggest things. We'll get into Duran in a little bit, but two of the biggest things this season to me are the emergence of Cassis and Duran. But I did want to mention, just going back to that series against the Mariners, mm-hmm. Rafi and Yu Chang, they not on the same page, that nightmarish inning that we alluded to. And Devers, he's hitting the ball right now. Like, we all know that. But if you look at it, defensive run safety is at minus eight, which is second last among third basemen, 13 errors, the most among third basemen, the most among non-shortstops, actually. 
And I really thought, and, and maybe you disagree with this, I thought coming into the season that he was actually going to be good defensively. I thought they found some stuff in 2022, and then he was dealing with the injury. But this is like a, a problem right now. And this is a guy that you paid $330 million to. I get it. You didn't pay for the glove. You paid for the bat and all this. But are you worried about Rafi's maybe not even just long-term, but short-term future at third base? Because it feels like, look, he's got the athleticism to be able to do it. I get all that. A lot of these are mental but these have been going on for what four or five years now. Yeah, and it it is interesting because last year he was basically you know an average defender yeah. at third base, and that's fine with his bat. That's right. that's the bar you need. But this year he's definitely regressed there. And as you said, the, the weird part to me is it seems like it's a focus thing. It's not necessary. It doesn't really seem to have any. It's not you know the throwing error, the throwing, the constant throwing errors, or poor footwork or anything like that. It's just it's just like routine plays that you you make and. I'm hoping it's just a blip where maybe there's some stuff going on where, you know, he's focusing on the plate because he was struggling. Remember, he had that rough stretch at the plate. Where was he hitting? He was hitting like under 240 for a couple of months. He's kind of found his swing recently. Maybe he was just putting in more time at the plate and not not focusing as much on the defense. Maybe having a constant revolving door at shortstop has impacted him. I do wonder if there's some Mm. communication issues there where... You know, he's used to the last he's played with one shortstop basically his entire career. You know, he's he knows Xander Bogarts is there. He knows what plays Bogarts is going to make. He knows where he's going to be positionally. And it's got to be difficult when you don't when you look to your left, and it's a different guy every night. You don't you know, you don't have that same understanding. And I do wonder we saw it on that Chang play. I do wonder if that's that's been something that's been kind of hard for him is adjusting from going with, you know, you had your the guy you basically came up in the organization with next to you every game for five, six, seven years. And now you've got a different player every night and you check the lineup and you don't know who it's going to be. And so I do wonder if maybe getting story back will help in that regard, where those who can kind of build some chemistry there, they're going to know where each other is going to be positionally. And that might help them get back on track. Um, that's definitely something I'm going to be watching for because yeah, the, there is the defense is a concern. You can't have a bad defender at third base. You got to be at least average there. And the problem that they run into is if they want to take his bat out of the lineup more, you're losing somewhere else because of how the team is currently constructed. So you need him to be playing third base. Right. It's a good point too, about the Bogart situation. That's a great point. I didn't think of, and look, he probably like when Kike was there, should I just cut him off because he can't throw it over to first? Exactly. Yes. I got to make all these plays because Kike is not going to make the play. So yeah, maybe getting story back will sort of stabilize things. And like you said, we're not looking for Matt Chapman. We're just looking for like an average level third baseman with the way that he swings the bat. All right, so another thing I wanted to get into is we saw these this idea that Heim Bloom wanted controllable pieces. It's actually one of the only times that Heim Bloom has told us what he was looking for, right? Like he's not yeah. necessarily like Dave Dombrowski, who's like, okay, <laughs> no. I'm going after this guy. That like, he doesn't do that, right? No. So those guys, <laughs> those guys are Dylan Cease, Mitch Keller, and Logan Gilbert, who I was actually impressed with Gilbert on Wednesday because he clearly didn't have his stuff. He didn't have his command at times, which is like. This guy's always throwing strikes, right? He's top five among starters in walk rates. I was actually impressed with him when it comes to that. But do you think in the offseason now, the Red Sox, clearly they're going to have to revisit starting pitching. But is it these type of guys? The only fear would be maybe some of these guys aren't on the market anymore. But do you think that Bloom will actually pull off a move in the offseason with a guy with multiple years of control left on the contract? Yeah, I think that they're number one target. Because I think the lineup, if you look at it, they basically are going to have everyone back. They, yeah. There's not really anything you need to address there. The only one is Duvall, but you have enough outfielders as currently constituted. So I think that starting pitching is going to be the number one priority this offseason. And 
I think the interesting thing will be it brings in free agency and there's actually a pretty decent crop of starting pitching free agents this year. I think it's like Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, um, Julio Urias. There's the, the, the two guys coming potentially coming over from Japan who are both really promising. And we know that the Red Sox have been scouting pretty heavily. So I would think in the offseason, they might try to go the free agency route more, especially given mm. they've reset the luxury tax. They should be going over the CBT this offseason. And if you're going to do that, the best way to do it for me is you need starting pitching. Go out and get one of the big name starters. You know, we've seen that I it's a lot more palatable to me to pay them a lot of money in free agency than to have to trade assets for them and then also pay them in free pay them to extend them. So I'd much rather just go out and get one of those guys than you know trade for Dylan Cease and then have to give him that big contract on top of it. I, I just think that with the way the team is going, I think that going out and getting spending big on an on, you know on a high end, whether it be a number two borderline number one starter, is the the best way forward. And I think the names are out there. It's just a matter of if they can get a deal done. Yeah, and that's a great point in terms of when you look at it in terms of the lineup, right? Because I do feel like the Red Sox are in a really good spot now to okay. We're not plugging holes. It's no. like we need a starting pitcher. Let's go and let's flex our financial muscles in the offseason and let's outbid somebody for one of these starters that's going to be around. I really like that idea because you look at it and you think about everybody that's coming back. Yoshida's under contract. Story's coming back and the assumption is going to be he's going to be healthy. Rafi's coming back. Casas has emerged into one of the best power bats in Major League Baseball. And that's not even hyperbolic. Duran nope. has been outstanding, right? So all these guys are contributing and technically I guess you could move Verdugo or he's going to be back the only thing there is it's dicey because he's got he's entering the final year of arbitration yeah. so I wouldn't be surprised if he's moved but the point is I mean the five guys I listed those are all really really good offensive players that you have coming back so you need to go out there and look at starting pitching and I feel like finally the Red Sox are in a really good spot where you feel really good about entering the season in 2024 with this lineup which does bring me back to the pitching you mentioned the free agents so from a prospects perspective I mean Drohan, who's been in AAA, you guys have him, what, six on SoxProspects.com. And you look at some of the other guys, like we talked about Murphy as sort of the bulk role guy. But is there anybody that you think that is close where they have an opportunity to contribute in 2024? So the wild card, and it's kind of a new uh, wrinkle, is Wickelman Gonzalez. He's someone who got up to Portland recently, and I saw him, and I think they actually threw a no-hitter that game. He threw, I want to say, six shutout or six no-hit innings, like 12 strikeouts. And he has been on an absolute tear since he made some mechanical adjustments after, I think it was about six weeks into the season. It's about mid-May. He's striking out almost two guys per inning, just premium stuff from the right side. He's a little undersized, some effort in the delivery, but... You know, he's up to 97, 90 miles an hour with a hammer breaking ball. And he also has a, a slider and a change up too, which it's a very interesting arsenal. And he's gone from someone who I was very reliever-ish, basically. I just thought he was mostly going to be a one-inning guy to maybe it can work. And if he can stick in the rotation, it's premium stuff. Um, you know, the command and consistency will probably keep him from getting that higher end of a starter, but he's getting closer to the point where I was, he's going to get added to the 40 man this off season. He's someone that I think we could be talking about at some point next season is coming up, but yeah, with him and then the other guys, Luis Prowse, he's a little further away. Probably won't see him next season, but he's got premium stuff too, from the right side, Uh big fastball, really good shape, Um, you know, carry up in 20, the zone. Right? Yeah. And Gonzalez, I think only 21, I want to say. So these two guys are really young. They're, they're, they're the upside plays. Whereas Drohan, He's regressed a little bit in AAA. His stuff is ticked down a little bit. The cutter is now a slider, which I'm not as big a fan of. 
I kind of look at those two as the main, if you're going to get, you know, if you're looking for someone who has a chance to obviously it's hard to say to get to the level of what Brian Bayo has become because Brian Bayo has turned into one of the, you know, better pitchers in the American league, frankly, um, before our eyes, which has been really impressive to watch, but they're guys who have that kind of upside at least. Whereas I think Drohan is more kind of like, you know, back end starter, best case. Um, they're definitely the ones I'm watching internally when it comes to pitchers. And after at the end of this month, they're actually going to be the top two pitching prospects in the system. Drohan's dropped a third behind them. So they're the gotcha. two. Uh, yeah. It's it's been an interesting Gonzalez has just been crazy. It's literally it's like a hundred and something strikeouts in 60 innings. He just <laughs> it, he's just unhittable. It's wild to watch. All right. So speaking of the prospects, so at some point, they're going to have to trade some of these guys away because not everybody's going to play, and especially in the middle infield when you have Story that's going to be here for a long time and you have Marcelo Meyer, the number one prospect in your organization. But you look through it, you guys have Miguel Blaze second, Rafael is third. Who, by the way, did you see that yesterday? He swung at like one out of 19 pitches. <laughs> I know he's had issues with plate discipline. Yeah. So I guess, he also homered was on that swing. <laughs> he homered, so it's pretty crazy. And we know how athletic that guy is. You have Nick York fifth, Mikey Romero eighth, and then... Veldez is 10th on this list, and Veldez is somebody that would certainly be willing to move at some yeah. point, considering that, I mean, he, he can't play defense. He, he's I also hurt right now. He's, he's injured hurt, right yeah. now, too. Yeah. So he, I, he can swing it against righties. Like, when he yeah. came up, they were only playing him against righties. He could swing it. But so yeah. out of that group, because eventually they're going to have to pick and choose who are their guys and who they're moving on from. So from your perspective, who are the guys, like, in that top 10 list, just the position players that you'd be willing to move, and who are the guys that you're saying, obviously Meyer is an obvious, but who are the guys yeah. you're saying you definitely wouldn't move? Meyer is off the table. Uh, the other one, you didn't mention, but Roman Anthony, who we currently oh, have Oh, yeah, fourth, Roman Anthony. They're not trading him. I wouldn't. He's his what he's doing is remarkable as a 19 year old His putting up like major league average eggs of Elos as a 19 year old is insane. Mm-hmm. And he his plate discipline and uh, swing decisions are just very advanced for his age. So I wouldn't trade him either. The hardest one is actually Rafaela because he's crushed it since he got up to put uh to Pawtucket geez, Worcester. <laughs> um you can tell I've been doing this a long time. I still call it Pawtucket. Uh he's hitting 330, 392, 661 with eight home runs since he got up to triple A. And as you said, it's still the swing decisions. Like the chase rate is still really high, but we've seen it work with some guys. You know, there are certain players that can get away with a high chase rate. And Obviously, the shelf life on them doesn't seem to last that long. I look at like Javi Baez was one of the, you know, considered one of the better middle infielders in the sport, and he's just cratered. And he's what, 32, I think now. Yeah. And, but there are other guys like I look at someone with the Astros, Janer Diaz, catcher. His chase rates up higher than Rafael's. I think it's like over 50%, but he's also hitting 280 because he just has extraordinary bat to ball skills. And I, I do, I'm starting to wonder if Rafael might just be one of those guys who, it's going to be inconsistent. There are going to be stretches that are frustrating, but he might just be good enough and be athletic enough where he can hit anything to the point where he's going to be able to be passable. And with his defense, he's good enough. So he's someone I'd probably want to hold just to see what happens with him because it's such a unique profile. And if you can get a potential gold glove defender at both center field and shortstop, hmm. we've seen the value of that. So I just, he's someone I would probably hold. Beyond that, I wouldn't have any issue trading any of the position players in the top 10. Um, I, I like Nick York. I, I think what he's doing as a 21-year-old in double A is really impressive. He's hitting the ball hard. There's some issues with swing and miss, but he, he's, it, it's still fine. And as I said, he's 21. He's faced, I think I looked yesterday, he's, he has two plate appearances against pitchers older than him or younger than him this year. So, but I think if you can get someone, if you can find a team that thinks he's a potentially everyday regular and get either, you know, another prospect at a position of need or MLB help, 
I think that's something you have to explore because as you said, they have the middle infield probably locked up between Story and Meyer. You know, there's not going to be a lot. There's not room for a yeah. third guy there. If if Meyer reaches his potential or, you know, even if 75% outcome, that's two guys who you're just, you write their names on the lineup and you just set it and forget it every day. So there's not really room for someone like York if he's going to turn into an everyday guy. So I think he's the biggest trade chip. And Miguel Blaze is just, it's a wild card now. You know, he had his shoulder issues. He really struggled this year. Um, if if you you could find a team that still believed he's got the upside, which I think he still does, then you, you definitely explore trading him. But it's probably best to just wait till he's healthy again and let him regain kind of some of that value by showing it on the field. Because I think their teams are going to try and buy low on him. But I don't know if you want it. He's someone I would be comfortable selling low on. Yeah. And with York, it's almost like you don't want to wait too long, right? Because no. you know he's not going to be playing in the major leagues, right? For the foreseeable future, just because you have those two guys like Meyer eventually and you have Trevor Story here. So you're yeah. going to have to figure out at what point maybe it's this offseason with Nick York. Maybe you get a team to buy in on York this offseason before it gets to the point where other organizations know like, hey, they kind of have to get rid of Nick York because yeah. he's not going to play for the Red Sox, right? Where they don't have a position of leverage, so to speak. So it'd be interesting to see if they shop Nick York in the offseason. Um, speaking of young guys, how about Tristan Casas? So I'm not even like since July, like all that, all those numbers are through the roof. Like he's basically been one of the best hitters in the sport. But even if you just go back to the start of May, so if you go back to the start of May, it's 13 home runs on the Red Sox only. Raffi and Turner have more. 295 average, which is 22nd, 22nd rather in Major League Baseball during that time. The on-base percentage is 383, which is 17th. Part of that is he has a 12.6% walk rate, which is 22nd. The mm -hmm. slug is 542, which is 14th. The OPS is 925, which is 9th. This is 261 plate appearances. This is not like a small amount of time. This is a basically the whole season except the month of April. So this to me, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, this is the most important thing that has happened for the Red Sox this season is Tristan Casas because I don't think, and you have Yoshida, you have Rafi, you have all these guys, you have Story, you have Meyer that's coming up in the pipeline, all this. But now you have a legitimate guy where I think 30 home runs is going to happen multiple times with him playing first base. Like, I don't think it's out of the question to look at what we've seen from Tristan Casas. We know this combination is so rare of raw power and plate discipline and He's got the on-base percentage and hits for average. Like even a guy like Kyle Schwarber wouldn't hit for average, right? No. Like Schwarber would. He's Schwarber hitting under two hundred again this year. <laughs> yeah, he'd hit a lot of home runs, but he doesn't hit for average whatsoever. And so I just I feel like this this could be, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, like a perennial all-star. Like I think he has that level of ability. Am I crazy? No, I, I agree. Um, I think what he's done, and and it's funny. I remember last time we talked, it was right when he was starting. I feel like to break out a little bit. Like he had had a couple good weeks in yeah. a row, and we were like, "You just got to be patient." I know the season numbers look terrible, but just wait. And all of a sudden, yeah, you said he's two fifty five, three fifty seven, four eighty for the season now, and that's with hitting what one twenty in May in April. Yeah, he was like, last in baseball in April. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was literally one of the worst hitters in baseball, and. I just when you look at his Statcast page. There's just so much red on there. You know his EVs are insane. His barrel rate is crazy. He walks. I think that he's one of those guys that he's he, he's really like confident in himself. When and you can see it at the plate, you know when he's calling out where the pitch location is and everything. Love that. He's just a, he's just a hitter. And when he found now that he's found his groove, this is yeah. I think the sky's the limit. You know you can just take off from here. And I think that's a really good point. It's. Having him is so important because a lot of the other guys in the lineup are not really true power hitters other than, say, Devers. As you said, Yoshida's more of a contact guy. Duran is turned into a great player, but he's more a doubles machine. 
they need some guys who can, you know, get them those quick, easy runs by hitting a home run. And he's looking like someone who, yeah, 25, 30 home runs consistently is not out of the question. And the infield starts to look really good when you have potentially him, Meyer, Story, and Devers. You know, that infield is that's that's you know you're, yeah. you're you're talking about like the Braves infield is the ones that you're comparing when you're talking about having that much depth at every position potentially you know if they got all those guys reach their upside that's four potential all-stars right there and it's just shows I think just how important it is and I think Duran is in the same boat how important it is to be patient with these top guys you know they might struggle out of the gate it's going to take adjusting to the major leagues is really hard these days there's there's and my, we're seeing it with Meyer frankly even in double a like there's a really big gap between the levels more so than there has been in the past. And I think the biggest jump, the first jump is double a, or excuse me, is high A to double a that's the the standard of pitching and quality of talent you see is just way better in double a, which makes sense, but it was not this way before. And I, I think part of it is due to the thinning out when they eliminated uh, short season, a ball it's kind of pushed guys more aggressively and weaken the low minors. But then you, the next one, you got double a to triple a, and then you have that triple a to the majors jump. And, Costas is one of those guys that, you know, it took him a little time, but now that he's found his groove and he's someone you can see anchoring your lineup for the next five to 10 years easily. And with him, Devers, Story, Meyer, all under team control for what, four years at least with stories, obviously the, the lower, the rest of those guys are all six, seven plus years. There's, you can really see what they're building here. And um, it's definitely very promising with those guys. All right, and before we let you go, so Chris Sale. Alex Cora said he's going to be in the rotation. Sale said he'll be an opener if you need that. Maybe they bring him up before he's like fully ready to give you six innings. I'd be fine with that because you're still in position. Like you have a huge series this weekend against Toronto. Like you're still mm-hmm. in position. And that Toronto team dealing with an injury to Bo Bichette, they have not been nearly as good as they were a year ago. I'm sure that it stinks for them that they didn't get Yoshida and the Red Sox did because we know Yoshida revealed that they were like the runner up and they could clearly use somebody that could hit from the left side. So that certainly helps them. And the Red Sox are 7-0 and against Toronto. So they certainly have an opportunity here to get that final wild card spot. But so Sale at some point is going to be back. And that's why I said I'd like him to be back sooner rather than later if he can just give him three to four innings for his first outing, just considering what we saw in the bullpen on Wednesday and how short this team has been at times. But before he got the injury and went to the IL, he's throwing the ball really well. And he looked like the old Chris Sale, not Chris Sale 300 strikeouts. No. But, I mean, the hard hit rate his last five starts was second among starters behind only our old friend Michael Walker. The strikeout rate at that <laughs> point was north of 28%. Like he was throwing the ball really well. I just wonder from your perspective, and I know he had the rehab outing. You think when Sale comes back, is it going to be similar to the guy that we saw before the injury? Or is this going to be a process? Because remember at the beginning of the season, what was it? April, it's a 675 ERA. He had trouble with his feel. He had trouble with command. Like what version of sale do you think we see when he eventually gets back with the big club? I mean, that's the million dollar question. And I think that what they're trying to avoid is that April situation by having him almost rehab in the big leagues and pitch in shorter bursts. Because with, with sale, he's just you're always afraid of injuries. And I actually agree with just get him up as quick as possible. Like give him two, two outings down there and then just have him rehab the rest of the majors. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Chris Murphy. We've seen the impact having a three to four inning guy who can give you three to four inning consistent innings every four to five days and shut the, basically shut the team down for that. If you can get that out of sale, push Murphy to the bullpen or frankly, even piggyback the two of them, if you wanted to do something like that, it makes a lot more the the, the bullpen and the, the whole situation. It, guys fit in their roles cleaner if you just get sale back pitching bulk innings every fifth day. 
And I, I think that that's what the goal is going to be. And it, the stuff looked good. I, I, I was able to watch some highlights, looked at the, the stat cast data. He's like up to 96. Um, you know, he was missing bats. He only threw, I think it was two or three innings. So short stint. But yeah, I think that you get him up as quick as possible because just you never know how many bullets he's got left in his arm and just, you know, rehab it there. Do two innings the first time, three innings the second time, four innings and that's what they're already piecing together games like that. So if you can tell me you can have Chris Sale pitching, you know, a third of every one of those games, much rather have that than some of the other options they have out there. So, yeah, I think that that's the goal. And, you know, you have him do that. And maybe if you get gets to late September, you're still you're still in contention. That's when you when you're slowly building up to that point where by hopefully by October, if you make the series or you make the wild card, he's in a position where he can start one of those games. Yeah. And if he comes back and his first outing is really good, I mean, yeah. it's, if it's at Fenway, of course, it's going to be electric in there. Yeah. And if he's I, three I innings, like seven strikeouts, oh, oof, man, that place is going to go be nuts. going nuts. Yeah. yeah. I, I was there for the Mets series and it was bumping. I mean, and yeah. part of that too is like the Mets fans, obviously, coming from New York, they traveled well, but that was, it was a nice atmosphere at Fenway. And the other thing is this weekend's going to be huge with Toronto in town and Manoa. My hope is that oh. we, that is the he Reds, throwing? Yeah, he, he's throwing oh, this weekend. I, they missed Gosman. So, Gosman's throwing. That's huge. Wow. Gosman's throwing. Uh, we're recording Thursday, so he's throwing tonight. So oh, wow, they're going to miss huge. Gosman. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's Bassett, Berrios, who they should be able to tee off on Berrios. And then, of course, Manoa. And I, I want revenge for, remember what happened last year with Franchi and Dahlbeck. This guy's taunting yeah. Franchi Cordero and Bobby Dahlbeck. At the time, Franchi was striking out like 40% of the time. It's like, what do you yeah. want, a medal for striking this guy out? Same thing with Bobby Dahlback. Remember the point where Core is getting into it with them too. So I hope they light up Manoa. I cannot stand that guy. I think I would love to see the Fenway crowd chanting the pitch clock when it gets like under 10 with him every <laughs> time too, because he's someone who obviously has had major issues adjusting to the pitch clock. So yeah, I, I think the crowd, it's, it should be a really good fun series where everyone's going to be into that because if they can go two or three or even a sweep here, what they, they'd literally, I think they would be the third wild card if that happens. So yeah, yeah, this is a massive series and the team, the lineup is playing well. It's it's a fun team to watch. And I think that, you know, if they can they can keep it going and get these guys back, who knows what can happen? You know, the AL is wide open to me. The NL is the Brazier juggernaut, but there's not a team like that in the American League. And why not us? Yeah, I can't wait. I hope to make a run into the and at the very least, give us competitive baseball until the end of yeah. the season, which of course exactly. we didn't have last year. I think we're at least guaranteed that. Like I don't think yeah. they're gonna completely fall off but this toronto series is going to go a long way determining things because after this you got an e you got an easy well i guess the royals have been playing better but we're talking about what kansas city and detroit after that yeah. like detroit That's, sucks you, you got to go four and two five and one in that series probably five and one frankly in those two or i don't know if they're four game series but yeah it's there's a big opportunity here if they can start getting some momentum from this Toronto series. And they've been lucky. You know, they've had obviously this this kind of inconsistent little stretch with the three game losing streak. Then you what they win two, then they lose two. Thankfully, they haven't really lost any ground in the wild card race. So this is this is kind of where it has to start. And hopefully if you get you win, you know, if you have a couple of good wins this weekend, then you start getting those guys back into the team, both in the rotation and the lineup. And who knows where you can go from there? Yeah, no doubt about it. All right. That is Ann Kundal. Director of Scouting at SoxProspects.com. And thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. And we'll have to have you on before the end of the season again, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always fun uh, talking baseball. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com. Make sure you check it out. Nobody covers prospects better than those guys do at SoxProspects.com. Looking forward to a huge series. Sox and Blue Jays coming up on Friday night. Enjoy the off night Thursday night. And then get ready to roll. Okay, so... 
I have my new list, my top five Celtics guards since 2000. Okay, now I should preface this, like Jalen Brown is not a guard. Jalen Brown is a swingman, and I understand that at times he's listed as a guard, and in the starting lineup he'll be listed as a guard, but he's really a forward, right? He's not a traditional guard. He's a swingman. He basically plays the same position as J Jason Tatum. So I just want to preface that. It's I'm not putting any swingman. I know like early on in his career, Pierce played some too. Pierce is a swingman. So these are all traditional point guards or shooting guards or combo guards like a Marcus Smart. Not tipping anything off, but nonetheless. Okay, so let me get to number one. Number one is Rajon Rondo, okay? And I know it didn't end well here with the Celtics. And this is sort of going to be a theme of this list. It didn't end well with the Celtics. But remember how the Celtics ended up getting Rondo too? Like just going back in history, they got him with the 21st overall pick in 2006. And remember, it came with a trade from the Suns along with Bryant Grant for the Cavaliers' first-round draft pick in 07. The Celtics sent that first-round pick, the 07 draft pick, in cash. So at 21, the Suns take Rondo for the Celtics. And remember at the time, Marcus Williams from UConn goes the very next pick. And Williams had played on those stacked UConn teams. He was actually on the 04 National Championship team. He didn't play much for that team. But that 06 team was the number one overall seed in the tournament. They ended up losing to George Mason, but that was a loaded team with Marcus Williams. And Marcus Williams played in a, remember, the lefty from UConn. I mean, some of you may not even remember this when this was actually going on. But he played in a ton of nationally televised games, and a lot of fans were familiar with him. But Ainge went with the upside with Rondo over sort of your prototypical ta uh, table setter point guard. And remember, like Marcus Williams, and I'll get into him in a second here, but Rondo came in with like all this crazy upside in terms of the, athletic the athleticism and six foot nine wingspan at the guard position. He had those crazy big hands. Now, Marcus Williams is a guy that never amounted to anything in the NBA and played like three years. But at the time, that was like, wait, Rondo over this guy who was like the proven entity at the collegiate level. So it was a really nice pick by Danny Ainge, of course. But first season, nothing special. You're in sort of that tanking year. And you had Sebastian Telfair. And Telfair was originally the starting point guard that year. And then he goes down with an injury and Rondo gets the starting gig. Then the second year comes around, and you make the big trade, of course, for Kevin Garnett. And in that trade, Telfair, it was included, right? So Al Jefferson, of course, the main piece. Theo Ratliff's expiring. Gerald Green, Ryan Gomes, a first-round pick. Another pick that they got back in a previous, that the Minnesota Timberwolves, I should say, got back in that Wally Zerbiak, Ricky Davis trade from early, a couple of years earlier. So then essentially, so that year, Telfair out. That means Rondo gets the keys. He averaged that year 10.6, 5.1 assists with the big three of the championship year, 1.7 steals per game. But even during that second season for Rondo, the year that the Celtics won the championship, there were questions. Can Rondo really be a point guard on a championship team? And remember what the Celtics did. They even went out and got Sam Cassell, Sam I am, who of course is now back on the coaching staff. But Rondo flashed that year and he especially flashed during the playoff run. He had that huge game five against the Cavs, 20 points and 13 assists. Game six against Detroit, the clincher against the Pistons, 13 assists. And then in the Lakers series, he had a 16 assist game in game two. And in game six of the NBA Finals, the clincher, Phil Jackson called Rondo the star of the game. He went for 21 points, eight assists, seven rebounds, and six steals, right? So right then and there after that championship, like we're all happy that they won a championship, but entering the next season, you're like, oh, Rondo may be really fucking good. Like they may really have something with this guy. So you felt like, okay, here you go. You're onto something. And even in that second season with Rondo, or I should say in the championship year, his second season 
With Rondo on the court that year, the Celtics outscored teams by 14.5 points per 100 possessions. That ranked in the 99th percentile. With Rondo on the court, that's how dominant that was with him on the floor and just the effect he had. Because at that time, early on in his career, he was an elite defender. Now, later on, wasn't as good of a defender. But when he started out, this guy was an elite level defender. And look, it was a great team, but you're already seeing something special with the combination of his defense and his playmaking. And at that point in time, yes, teams did not respect him. They sagged off him in terms of his shooting. But I always felt like that was a mistake from defenses because Rondo has great court vision and he he could sort of just like eat up that space and make the right play. Like I always felt that wasn't a great strategy and Rondo sort of dissected it. Like I don't... Now, later on in his career, it became more of an issue, but I don't remember times where, like, the Celtics' offense was rendered ineffective because of Rondo's lack of shooting. Like, we see that exposed so much in the NBA nowadays. That didn't happen with the Celtics. And look, maybe it's just defenses now are better and the strategy is better. But anyway, his season averages the next year, okay? He goes up to 11.9 points and 8.2 assists. So the championship year, remember I referenced the 5.1 assists, that next year... 8.2, I guess that would have been theoretically his third year in the league. Now, obviously, KG goes down that year. Rondo plays the most minutes for the Celtics during that playoff run. He averages a near triple-double, 16.9 points, 9.8 assists, 9.7 rebounds, and 2.5 steals. I mean, it's a ridiculous stat line, right? He had 29 in the Game 1 loss where Ray went for 50 against Chicago in that opening series that went seven games, dramatic series. In the Game 2 win, he had 19, 16, and 12. He had 28-11 in an eight-rebound game. Now, they, of course, lost to Orlando, but Rondo had 15 points, 18 assists, and an 11-rebound game in the Celtics' game to win. I mean, he was all over the place from rebounding to playmaking. And the big thing about him rebounding is then he could just push the ball up the court. And then what we said after that season was, well, it's a big four now with KG set to return. Like, Rondo is, it's not just Pierce- Ray Allen and KG anymore, Rondo's part of the equation, right? So Rondo's third season, or Rondo's fourth season, I should say, he leads the Celtics in minutes per game, 13.7 points per game, 9.8 assists. Those 9.8 assists were fourth in the NBA, behind only Steve Nash, Chris Paul, and Darren Williams, who those three point guards at that time were considered the best in the sport. Rondo was right there. Also that season, he averaged 2.3 steals per game, which led the entire NBA. Rondo made the all-star game that season as well. Playoffs, he led the team in minutes, 15.8 points per game, 9.3 assists. He averaged 20, 12, and 6 in a series against the Cavs. He had 5 steals and 21 points in a game. He had 19 assists in game 2, which tied a franchise record for assists. Remember that series against the Cavaliers in 2010? This is the year where the Celtics would go back to the NBA Finals. Now, he did deal with some injuries the next few seasons, but three straight seasons, Rondo was north of 11 assists per game leading the league twice during that span. By the way, forgot to mention this. He led the league in steals back in 09-10 as well. So a couple of times he led the league in steals, a couple of times he led the league in assists. Okay, in the 2012 playoff run, this is when we went, holy shit, this guy is something, right? 2012, he had a battle with LeBron James. You could argue he outplayed LeBron. Like, you could actually make that argument. Now, I would side on the LeBron thing. They won the series. LeBron was outstanding in game six and seven, but... You could, like, make an argument. It wouldn't be crazy to come up with an argument for that. So he led the Celtics in points that series against the Heat, 20.9. Obviously, in assists, 11.3. He also added 6.9 rebounds per game. He had 10 assists or more in all but one game against Miami. He controlled the pace of the game. He had 44-10-8 in a loss. 
He had 15 and 15 in the game five win over Miami. Okay. Now LeBron did his thing game six. He had 45. He was tremendous again in game seven. Remember, that's the famous game where LeBron came into the garden and he didn't smile. Like he, he just went completely off. He went nuts. But Rondo didn't really have much help during that series in terms of the game seven. Rondo in game seven had 21 and 10. Pierce had nine points on four of 18. Garnett had 12 and Ray had just 10. And that's sort of when we knew it was kind of ending for the Celtics. And we knew this group was done, but Rondo was going blow for blow at that time with the MVP of the league, right? I mean, how many other guys can say that? They legitimately went toe for toe with LeBron James. Rondo did that, right? And then in 13, he was an incredible. Started the season with 24 straight games at 10 plus assists. And sure, like we had this whole national TV Rondo thing where whenever he's on national TV, he was sort of hunting for assists. He certainly did do that. But then he tore the ACL in 2013. And that's when things really went south for Rondo because Garnett and Pierce were traded and he didn't want to be part of the rebuild. But he was a four-time all-defensive team player with the Celtics, led the league in assists twice, as we mentioned, four-time all-star or four all-star appearances and an NBA, an all-NBA team as well when Rondo was a member of this team. And look, Ray was a great player for this team in terms of ranking these guards, the Celtics guards, but Rondo became, after 2008, the more important player. He was the guy running the show and he had that stretch after Ray Allen left. And look, him and Ray, they had their issues. I'll get into that in a second. But man, I think further and further, or I should say the further and further we get away from Rondo's career, the more we forget about how good this guy was. And I think part of it is just, we know that the style, not being able to shoot, doesn't work in this current NBA. But remember, even when he went to the Lakers in the bubble, he shot 40% from deep. But he was just so fun to watch, right? He had that vintage, that fake behind the back pass that always seemed to work. Nobody could ever pick on that, uh, pick up on that. And part of the reason he could do that is his hands were so big, he could just palm the ball. And remember when he snuck into the huddle of the Miami Heat at one point? Like, he's just unbelievably an entertaining player. He was legitimately the best player on a team that took LeBron James seven games. And I know national TV Rondo and all that, but I just, I really feel like he carried himself as the best point guard in the league. In fact, I know he did. Remember, he said it on multiple occasions. He said he's the best point guard in the league. He had that whole thing with Chris Paul where him and Chris Paul really hated each other. It went back as recently as 2018 where they were throwing punches. He had the whole did Rondo spit, did he not spit thing. In 09, Rondo and Chris Paul got into it. He told Chris Paul he would never win a ring. <laughs> After Rondo had been pissed that Chris Paul made the Olympic team and he didn't. And by the way, Rondo's still running that. Chris Paul hasn't won a ring yet. Maybe he will this season with Golden State. But even if you look at it like late, I know his... Defense fizzled with the Celtics, and he admitted after the trade to Dallas, which that was a mess for Dallas. He admitted that he wasn't trying on defense when he at the end of his tenure with the Celtics. But Rondo, without question, since the start of 2000, best Celtics guard, incredibly entertaining, super athletic, super competitive, too. I loved watching Rondo play. The guy was all over the place. So Rondo has got to be number one on this list. And I hope we can start to appreciate him more now, because I do feel like he kind of goes under the radar when we're talking about the Celtics. He was such an important part of that era of Celtics basketball. All right, number two on the list is Ray Allen. Okay, because you have a bunch of candidates here, but I'm going with Ray. And I know it didn't end well, just like it didn't end well with Rondo when he got traded to Dallas. It certainly did not end well with Ray. Okay, but remember the origin to this. Okay, Ray and Rondo had their issues. And from Ray's book, Ray said, people would always say to me, he looks you off when you come off a screen. He sees you and he doesn't pass you the ball when you're open. Ray went on to say, at first my family would say it because they watch intently and they know the game. And so I just said, listen, because you've said this before about other guys, but I don't engage in that. So then I started paying attention to it 
because I started noticing it. And I went to Doc and I asked Doc and I said, Doc, I think dude is looking me off and he's not passing me the ball. And I don't know why, but I'm coming off. I'm running the plays that you're drawing up and he's not passing me the ball and he'll shoot it or he'll go in another direction. Doc's response to Ray, and this is in Ray's book. I know we talked about that as a coaching staff. Ray, I was like, so you knew the whole time. You didn't say anything. You didn't address it to me. More importantly, you're not addressing him about it. (laughs) So... I think his response or his way of handling it was this was when he wanted to bring me off the bench. Remember that whole issue with Ray Allen late in his tenure here. But then you also had, so you had him and Rondo had issues. The coaching staff, according to Ray, admitting that Rondo wasn't passing Ray the ball. And remember you had the trade rumors in 2012 where the Celtics nearly sent Ray Allen to Memphis for OJ Mayo. Like that thing was almost done. And then remember also in that season, so he's not getting along with Rondo. He has the trade rumors that are there. It was never Garnett. It was never Pierce. It was always Ray. And you understand why that's the case. But if you're Ray, you probably feel underappreciated when it came to that. And then the final season, he was also dealing with the ankle injury. That's why he talked about coming off the bench. He needed surgery on that after the season. And during that 2012 playoff run, he started that playoff run still coming off the bench. And really, in his whole career, in terms of the playoffs, he had never come off the bench before. And he was for the Celtics in the 2012 playoff run. So, and by the way, it wasn't good in that run, but he only got 9.3 shots per game. So then you had the contract issues with Ray, where he wanted three for 24 million. The Celtics offered two for 12. So they're offering less than the total value he wanted, of course. Okay. He goes to Miami for two for six. So a huge pay cut. And remember, Ray said that he didn't want to come off the bench because It's not who he is. He didn't want to come off the bench at that point with this Celtics team. And part of that was the Avery Bradley emergence, if you will. So Ray from his book on that. So let me see if I got this straight. You want me to, you want to play me less. You want to pay me less money. You want to bring me off the bench. You want to continue to run the offense around Rondo. Again, coming back to the Rondo theme. Now tell me exactly why I would want to sign this contract. So I think Ray gets a bad rap here, right? And I get it because it was the heat and the Celtics and the heat. They didn't like each other at that particular point in time. And they still don't really like each other. But with all that stuff, the Rondo drama, the contract, coming off the bench, I totally understand why Ray wanted to move on. I know Celtics fans don't like to hear this, but I totally understand what Ray was thinking there. But I think part of it, like with Ray Allen, we need to start to appreciate what he did when he was actually here. And the fact that him and Garnett, it felt like him being at Garnett's ceremony, like that was awesome. Now, Garnett's saying that he needs to have his jersey retired. That's a little bit too much for me. But nonetheless, you look at going back to 2008 and what Ray did for this team. So Ray goes from taking 21 shots a game in Seattle to 13.5 with the Celtics. So seven and a half less shots per game. And he didn't have the ball in his hands a lot like he did in Seattle, right? Like he was a ball handler type player. Like people forget young Ray wasn't just somebody that ran off screens. He was dunking on people. And so Ray went from 26.4 points per game his final year in in Seattle to 17.4 his first season with the Celtics. Obvious thing is the free throws were way down, 5.6 down to 3.2. That just tells you the usage was way down. You look at his usage, final year in Seattle, 29.5%. That was down to 21.6% with the Celtics. So just to put that into context, that would be going like from Julius Randle and Paul George this year in terms of their usage rates to guys like Gary Trent Jr. and Bobby Portis. So this guy sacrificed a ton for this organization and their chance to win a championship. And remember, Ray still managed 17.4 points per game on just 13.5 shots per game. 
Part of that is he shot 39.8% from deep. He was 51st in the NBA in shots per game that season. That tells you how much he really sacrificed for the team. The year prior, he was third in the league in shots behind only Kobe and Carmelo, two known gunners, right? And he was such a weapon, weapon having this guy that was a perennial all-star be your spacer. I mean, that is a big ask. And he took it on and he was great in that role. And the Cleveland series, like he was bad in that series against Cleveland. He didn't have 21. So he had the goose egg in game one, just 13 combined points and six and seven, oh, of five from deep. But remember in the finals, he woke up and he was great in the finals. And he took on that Kobe matchup for large stretches. Remember back in his days in Seattle, Kobe and Ray had a thing, but he averaged 20.3 points per game in the finals. He shot 52.4% from deep. He was 22 of 42. He went off at game six, 26 points. He had seven threes that tied a record at the time. He then broke the record with eight in game two of the 2010 finals, by the way. He broke Michael Jordan's record by hitting seven and one half. Remember, Jordan famously had that game against the Blazers where he just completely went off. And that's when, you know, he kind of gave the shrug thing, that famous shrug that Jordan had. And remember, he broke Larry Bird's record for a consecutive free throws made with 72. 09 playoffs, he was really good in that Bulls series, had 51 in the loss. He also had 30 in the game two win and the game winner. He had 23 in the closeout game. He was not great in the Orlando series, but Ray's first two years with the Celtics, fourth and made threes per game in the entire NBA. And I told you, like, the volume is down in terms of his shot attempts. And he was third and made threes per game in the 2009 season. You don't win an NBA championship clearly without Ray in 2008, even if he wasn't great in the Cleveland series. He was awesome against the Lakers. And another part of Ray that flies under the radar, as much as it got ugly until they kind of patched things up a little bit, you don't even get Garnett without Ray Allen, right? Remember, you needed Ray to get Garnett. Garnett wasn't sold on coming here until Ray Allen decided to come here as well. So I thought Ray really, from my perspective, I think that Ray Allen is a guy that gets way too much heat. And I know like part of it, even for me at the time, it was like, hey, you know what? It's the laundry situation, right? Where... I was pissed off at Ray Allen at the time, like I'm sure a lot of you were, but we didn't have the whole story. We didn't know everything about Ray Allen. And remember, when Ray Allen leaves, we find out how important he was to the team because you bring in Jason Terry and Ray goes on to hit one of the biggest shots in NBA history with the Miami Heat. And Jason Terry wasn't the same. He was 35. He averaged 10 points a game. He just wasn't effective. Remember, LeBron dunked on him. They had their issues from the Dallas-Miami series, but they were terrible with Terry on the court that year, the Celtics, via cleaning the glass. 102.6 offensive rating, 32nd percentile. It just didn't work out. So Ray deserves the two spot here because, first of all, for the championship and how great he was as a shooter, but you can't put him in front of Rondo because Rondo had that stretch after Ray and Rondo became more important to that Celtics team after the first championship. He controlled the entire game. Obviously, Ray had the way better career, like going back to Seattle and Milwaukee and really what he did with the Heat as well, hitting that huge shot. And young Ray was dunking on people in Milwaukee and Seattle. But I just think as a catch and shoot guy, Ray was amazing. And that's how we sort of remember him as a Celtic. And that's what he was for the Celtics. But before that, had a whole different career where he was an unbelievable player. But Ray has got to be number two. I just wish it didn't end so poorly here. And we would find out. Celtics would have been better off with Ray Allen than Jason Terry, bottom line. All right, number three on my list, Marcus Smart. So guys have had higher highs like Isaiah Thomas, who may or may not be coming up on this list. And I just can't put him in front of Ray because Ray got the ring and he was a big part of that team. And he was the third best player on a championship team. So I'm always going to side with the guy, as I learned from the boss, that has the ring. Ray has the ring. Marcus didn't have the ring. Marcus could have been the third or the fourth best player on a team that won a championship. The Celtics didn't do it. 
And look, here's the big thing about Smart. I, this is not meant to be an indictment on Smart. This, he's third on my list. I'm just saying why I have Ray over him, right? And I don't even think I really have to justify that. But nonetheless, if you go back, Smart was here for nine years. He was the first pick of this rebuild in 2014 after the Pierce Garnett trade. He finished up his ninth season with the Celtics before this Grizzlies trade, of course. How many years did he play in the playoffs? All nine years. And look, we all know the shortcomings, right? The shots that made you scratch your head at times. Remember the bubble game or the bubble period where he ended up throwing chairs like he or the trash can rather in the locker room and game seven, he took 22 shots. There's no reason Marcus Smart should have been taking the most shots in an elimination game. He was never scared of the moment. You'll give him that. By the way, he was four for 13 from deep in that game. But anyway, the good stuff, DPOI in 2022, three all first team defensive team selections and Look, we talked about it on the pod how the defense slipped this past season, but the two main reasons the Celtics became the best defensive team in the league in 01 or the 2021-2022 season, Robert Williams going to that rover role where they took him off the big and he became just like an unbelievable help defender as a shot blocker. The second was Marcus Smart, his move to point guard. So you weren't playing any small guys in that unit. Smart was your smallest player at 6'4", 6'9". So it's impossible to score on the Celtics when that's your smallest player, who we know Smart can legitimately guard one through four, right? And if you look at Smart's numbers that season, guys were nine for 34 against him when they challenged him as the primary defender in isolation. That's just 26.5%. That was in the 93rd percentile. So if you scored on Marcus that year, keep the fucking ball, okay? The Celtics that season had a 106.1 defensive rating with Marcus on the floor, that was in the 92nd percentile via cleaning the glass. And look, you could have argued for other guys that season, but he was the first guard to do that since Gary Payton. And really, that doesn't go to guards anymore. Sidney Moncrief won the first one in 82-83, won the second one as well. Michael Cooper, 86-87. Jordan, 87-88. So the first couple all go into guards, and then Payton, 95-96. And it's like basically all big man, the occasional swing man in there like the Kawhi Leonard's of the world. So we're talking about 26 seasons in between. That just tells you how special Mark's defense, or Marcus Smart's defensive season was that year. They also, just in general, they outscored teams by 9.7 points per 100 that season via cleaning the glass with Marcus on the floor. That was in the 95th percentile. And he had huge moments, right? Remember, going back to the 2017 Eastern Conference Finals, Smart started for IT, who was dealing with an injury. He hit seven threes. He went for 27 points and seven assists, and that was the game where Avery Bradley hit that crazy three that just kind of fell in at the end of the game, the one game the Celtics took from the Cavs in that series. That's when the Cavs had Kyrie, too, but, and you have individual games you can go back to, too. Like, one of the ones that sticks out to me the most about Marcus Smart and his tenure here is it was a regular season game against Houston when they were really rolling, Houston was, and James Harden was at the peak of his powers, leading the league in scoring and assists. So at the end of that game, it's 98-97 with 7.3 seconds left. Smart first finds Jason Tatum for a dunk to take the lead, and then he drew an offensive foul on Harden trying to get the inbound. Remember that? And you could say he flopped whatever, and Harden did run into him. But then the Rockets end up taking the league 98-97. And then with 3.7 seconds left, Al gives the Celtics the lead. What does Smart do? He gets another offensive foul on James Harden when the Rockets are trying to inbound the ball. He just takes another charge. You don't see that. Back-to-back charges at the end of the game. He He sealed the game, rather, with charges. Unbelievable. And something does need to be said about Marcus in terms of longevity. He was here for nine years, right? That puts him in front of a lot of other guys in this conversation. 
Think about all the teams he played with. First team that he played with, that was before the Rondo trade. Jeff Green was back, Avery Bradley, Jordan Crawford, Jared Sullinger, Kelly Olenek, Gerald Wallace, Brandon Bass. Then he had the Isaiah Thomas years, right, where you had Evan Turner in the mix for a bit, and then he he got a big contract, but he played with Al and Terry, played with Hayward and Kyrie, then Kemba, and eventually got to Tatum and Jalen Brown. So nine years really was not like anyone else in the league at that time. He's such a unique player. So, and finally, when he got that point guard role, it sort of changed the outlook of this organization for a couple of years here. And look, didn't end well. I get it that now he's with Memphis. I shouldn't say it didn't end well, but unfortunately it didn't end the way that the Celtics and he wanted with the championship, but he had a tremendous career. There's no way about it. Number four on the list, I'd see Isaiah Thomas. So we went through Isaiah Thomas a few pods ago and we we're talking about the most entertaining list. So we don't have to get into it in great detail, but all NBA selection here, led the team to a one seed, played through injuries, made this a real playoff team. His all NBA season, he had 50 points in a game. He five times was over 40. He had 26 30 point games. So 31 over 30 points total. So 39, almost 40% of his games, he had north of 30 points that season in a game. He had 8.5 threes per game that season. Only Curry, Harden, and Eric Gordon hit more. He had more than Clay in terms of three point shots made per game that season more than clay thompson he was unstoppable as an iso scorer he shot 62 of 137 45.3 percent that was in the 95th percentile pick and roll ball handler he was 22 224 of 502 44.6 94th percentile so 224 shots he made out of pick and roll that season seventh most in the league so elite pick and roll ball handler elite isolation scorer he was unstoppable and he took over the city for two years. I mean, he was the toast of the town. The guy was absolutely incredible, unbelievable at his size. We went through it the other day, but just phenomenal. He's fourth on my list. I can't put him in front of Smart. Smart was here for nine years and played in the NBA Finals. Can't do it. Ray won a championship, and I don't have to make the case for these other guys, but you get my point. Fifth is tough for me, okay? I'm scratching at this one. So fifth, as much as I'd love to put Derek White on this list, it's basically he's been here for a year and a half, and this year was like his breakout season with the Celtics, but... You can't put him ahead of any of these other guys, and I don't think he deserves the fifth spot. As much as I love Derek White, I think if I do this same list three years from now, he'll be on it. But the early 2000s group, you had like Kenny Anderson, even though that trade is not great because Chauncey Billups and all that. He did average 11 and 5 in 241 games with the Celts. The conference finals run, he averaged 12 and 5. He actually averaged 12.7 and 5.3 in those conference finals against the Nets. Tony Allen had a nice run as a defensive specialist, but he could do very little offensively. The championship year, he averaged 6.6, and he played just 18 minutes per game. Obviously, Kyrie's eliminated, destroyed the team. All NBA in his first year, 24.4 and 5.1 assists, shot 49.1% from the field and 40.8% from deep. But after the injury, he was never the same guy in terms of the deviated septum, whatever it was, didn't show up to game seven against the Cavaliers. The next year was just a complete mess where he's talking to Kevin Durant about leaving. Like, you can't consider Kyrie... Kemba, I just can't get there. And maybe to me, the standard with Kemba was too high. I think that's part of why I'm scarred by the Kemba thing, is we thought he was going to be the replacement to Kyrie. Not that he was as good as Kyrie, but we knew he had already had three procedures on his knee. I, quite frankly, I never liked the deal to begin with. And I said it when I was at my former employer, hated bringing in Kemba Walker to begin with. Not that I didn't like him as a guy. He's an awesome guy. He's an awesome player. I just thought that he was going to deal with injuries, and he did. Now, first year... All-star team bombing at 38.1% of his threes on 8.4 attempts, but he was bad in the bubble playoff run. Remember, he came back from the injury, and he wasn't in 
the typical Kemba form where he could just go by, fly by people. He didn't have that. So the Heat went at him in that series. Now, he did average 19.6, or I should say in the conference finals, the Heat went at him. He did average 19.6 per game during that run, but he shot just thir- he shot just 31% from the field or 31% from deep in 17 games. So he wasn't really good as it pertains to his shooting ability. He had the knee issues as well. And then he had stem cell surgery in December of 2020. Couldn't play in back-to-backs. Final two games of the playoffs in 2021, he missed because he was dealing with another injury. So I just felt like I loved Kemba, but he failed to meet. He was nowhere near the expectations to the point where he was a salary dump. Sure, the first run that he had his first year here was great, but he was never the same player after that initial injury. Really, from the bubble on, he wasn't a great player for the Celtics whatsoever. And I love him as a player. Now, Avery Bradley is another guy. He probably should get this spot just because... He did it for a number of years here, a great defender, and he really turned himself into a good three-point shooter, 39.5% in 13-14, 39% in 16-17 on five attempts, averaged 16 a game that season, actually. He was really good. He has a really good argument. The team that made the finals with Avery Bradley, 95 defensive rating with him on the court. That was in the 97th percentile via cleaning the glass. That was the 2010 team. The 15-16 Celtics were 7.5 points per 100 better on offense with Bradley on the court, 94th percentile via cleaning the glass, and as I mentioned, longevity, spent seven years with the team, but he never really had a moment. So this is where, and this may be out of left field, and a lot of you may disagree with this, but this is why number five on my list had a moment. Scary Terry, okay? He was great against the Bucs when Kyrie went down. Remember, 17.6 per game in that series. He had 26 points in the closeout game. He was 10 of 16. He had three 20-point games in that series against Milwaukee. 26 and nine in the closeout. Philly series, 29 points a game. Or Philly series, I should say, he had a 29-point game. 19.7.2 rebounds, 4 assists. He was 17 of 41 from deep in that series, 41.5%. Now, he was not good, of course, in the final game against Cleveland, game 7 of 10 from deep. But if you look at it, in the final 13 games after Kyrie sits out, he's the fourth-leading scorer. And remember, he had this moment in that Bucks series where there was an incredibly entertaining seven-game series where he crossed up Eric Bledsoe so bad that Eric Bledsoe went flying back like near the elbow area. And then Scary Terry took it in between his legs, stepped back three, nailed it. Dude was like 10 feet away from him. And after that game, Terry was giving credit to the Bucks, and he called Eric Bledsoe Drew Bledsoe accidentally, front of the pod, Drew Bledsoe. We had him on him a while back. And Bledsoe... And then Bledsoe said about Terry Rozier, I don't even know who the fuck that is. <laughs> That's what he said about Terry. So then remember in that game five, Terry and Bledsoe start going at it. Bledsoe just ran into him and Terry didn't back down. He went back at him. They're going back and forth. And that whole thing escalated. After the game seven win, Drew Bledsoe is at the presser wearing a Terry Rozier jersey. And then Terry showed up in the next series against Philly that we mentioned earlier He was wearing the Patriots Elvis one. Remember the old school, the Royal Blue Patriots uniform, Drew Bledsoe jersey to that game. So he continued to take that whole thing on even after they had beaten the Milwaukee Bucks. And like I said, I know the 0 for 10 against the Cavs and all that. But in 19, it got bad, right? He was pissed about playing time. He went from being the point guard, then Kyrie's back. Obviously, Kyrie should have been starting. But you get the point is he didn't have a certain role with the team anymore. He ends up going to Charlotte. But Terry had a moment. Like, you could make a really good case for Avery Bradley. Like, you certainly could. And are there guys that you could make a case for Kemba? Like, Kemba was really good for this team at the beginning. But I just feel like out of this group, 
Terry had the biggest moment for this Celtics team. Like, he was unbelievable during that run, and he was just so entertaining. That Buck series was awesome. All right, let's bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan to critique the list, see what he likes, see what he doesn't like. So, Jamie, any problems with number one, or are you siding with Rondo, too? I am so down with Rondo. I was kicking myself when we came up with the five most entertaining players that he didn't make the list, because obviously he should have, and... I think more than anything, he was just a baller. He played well in the big games in crunch time, and uh, you got to respect that. Yeah, I'm with you. Ronda was outstanding, and we forget about it because it was so long ago. It ended poorly. All right, so how about the rest of the list? So I had two was Ray Allen, Smart was third, and then fourth I had IT, and then I had fifth on my list. I ended up going with Scary Terry. There's a lot of other (laughs) nominees that you could have with that number five spot. So would you replace any of those, switch the order around at all? I think it's pretty good. I think the Rozier, um, when you first said it, I was kind of like, oh, that's unusual. But, you know, I like a flair for the dramatic. So that was a pretty fun little moment in history. I'd say your boy, Derek White, uh, it's early, but I guess maybe it's just re- recency bias. Yeah, you're right. Like he had a, he had an outstanding season, but it just he's got to do it more often. And this is me. I'm the president of the Derek White fan club. It's just it's only one year. Avery Bradley, Avery Bradley, I, I've forgot how good Avery Bradley he was, was for this team. He locked he it was, down on defense. Yeah, he was a really unbelievable on-ball defender for a number of years here with this team, and he was really good in that second run to the NBA Finals that the Celtics had, and in that years, or those years rather, where it was like the bridge Celtics going from the Garnett Pierce teams to mm-hmm. the Tatum Jalen Brown teams. Like, he was really good during that stretch as well. And look, I love Kemba. I just feel like the guy was always hurt, and you couldn't rely on him. And this whole season, remember the second playoff run they had with Kemba, the whole idea was, hey, he's not playing back-to-back, so he's going to be healthy for the postseason. Then he's not healthy for the postseason. And you have guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum that are out there every day. And they're like, when's Kemba going to play? When Kemba's not going to play? So I just feel like for what we expected from Kemba, and I was even on the low end. I hated that move at the time. And I like Kemba. It just, the guy is a small, diminutive point guard in terms of his stature. Yeah. And he had three procedures on that knee already. It was a ticking time bomb. And as we're seeing now, unfortunately, he had to sign overseas. And Tony Allen's another guy that, look, good player and all that, but it's like, guy couldn't he throw the ball in the fucking ocean. Five. Like, I mean, yeah. smart, smart, like from an offensive perspective, smart, it's not even close. Like, smart, it's a great facilitator, a great passer. I mean, Tony Allen gave you shit offensively. I think three is appropriate for smart, but it, it pains me to say that. I just, it just, now that he's off the team and stuff, it's just, there's such a delineation between Ray and Rondo winning that championship and then the rest of the guys. And I just can't believe that Marcus didn't get one. You know, and same thing yeah. with Kemba. I mean, there's been so many what-ifs the past 10 years, and uh, it's a shame they didn't get a championship with those guys. And you know what else made me sad, Jamie, is just going back through the, the Ray Allen stuff. Yeah. I love I didn't that know guy. all that stuff, what you said about... Uh, you know, going to talk about Rondo and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was a big thing when his book came out. But it made me sad because I loved Ray when he me came too. over. Ray was awesome, man. You know what else? Just a random thing about Ray. He's, I think he's got the biggest calves in the world. You notice that? <laughs> this guy has huge calves. I'll, I'll do some Googling. He's an all-calves team guy. Him and Derek Fisher in that finals. Derek Fisher had huge Derek calves, Fisher too. Derek Fisher for big biceps, too. I remember Derek oh, Fisher. Oh, yeah, he was jacked up, man. Should have tested yeah. him for PEDs. Great stuff, Jamie. Thanks, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 